Today with episode 378, I think Friday I said it was episode 378 too, but it was 377. Today is 378, I'm sure, because I checked before I wrote it down this time and double-checked, so I didn't make that mistake again. So what are we going to do today? We're going to get back into tradition here. It's a Monday. We're going to do a listener feedback, listener question show today. Got a bunch of questions lined up for you guys, and I'm going to take them one at a time and do what I can to help you guys out with the questions that you're sending to me and with some of the commentary you're sending to me. So today, again, since I'm now full-time in the uh, studio instead of out in the car, will not just be questions. There will be some articles and things like that people have sent in as well that have asked me for comment on it. I'll do my best for you on those. Um, before we do that, though, I want to take care of the housekeeping first. Always, uh, first item in the housekeeping is taking care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one, SOE Tactical Gear. Um, SOE started out as a company that originally was doing very small order runs, uh, custom produced for special operations troops. Uh, Special Forces, Navy SEALs, people like that around the world who looked at some of their issued gear and said, we need better gear than this, or we need more appropriate uh, mission gear than this for certain things. And they wanted the very best, so they turned to John Willis for that, and that turned into a major company over time producing what I believe is the toughest uh, tactical gear known to man. If you doubt that, take a look at a YouTube video. I'll see if I can put a link in it for you today. Where they take two of his pistol belts and tie together a blazer in a truck and try to pull the belts apart. Look at what happens with that. What basically happens is the two trucks go into a stalemate and the belts don't give. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive. If you want gear, you'll hand down to your kids. SOE is the place to be. All right, next up today is the Berkey guy. Uh, the Berkey guy at Directive21.com is a reseller of Berkey light water filters. Um, I really think if you're looking for a Berkey, the Berkey guy is the Berkey guy, right? He's the guy to see. Not just, I mean, look, let's be honest. If you buy a Berkey water filter from any place that sells them, you're going to get the same thing. But if you want personal service, if you want somebody to listen to your needs, make sure you get the right thing. If you want somebody to work with you when some items are low in stock, if you want somebody that actually cares about the customer and will make sure that you get 100% satisfactory service every time, that you can call up and will talk to you and take care of you, the Berkey guy is the guy to call. And I'll tell you why you need this product. You need this product because water is the most important commodity that we could ever have. If you have specific questions, I've, ha- I've had people ask me exactly how fine this Berkey filter and will it filter this? Ask him. Call him up. Ask him. His name's Jeff. He'll take care of you. He'll absolutely take care of you. He'll give you honest answers to everything. It'll make sure you get the right product. That's why he's a sponsor on the show. Sponsors on the show are people that take care of the audience. I don't view my show as a way to sell advertising. I view the advertising on my show as a service to my listeners. These two sponsors today epitomize that. All right. Let's go on to the next uh, thing. Uh, I want to remind you to connect with us on our social media outlets. I'm going to announce today that Wednesday I'm doing a big giveaway, a very big giveaway. I think I'm going to give away some more T-shirts. Okay. Um, I also am going to give away maybe some uh, maybe some very very low cost first years of the MSB. I might do something nuts. I might do like five people win ten dollars for the first year of members brigade. Uh, but I'm going to do a really big prize. Wednesday's going to be a huge prize day, and I'm going to do in different contests at least two you know separated into two contests because one contest I'm going to reveal right now. It's very important that if you're going to play in this contest, if you win, that you are actually going. To, uh, to turn up. Dirt Time 2010 is coming this year in June. It's going to be in Wyoming. It's going to be a, 150 people limited attendance, plus the instructors. Some of the instructors there are internationally known. Uh, people like Dave Canterbury, who's currently filming a, a documentary for the, or not, a, a new series for uh, Discovery Channel. Ron Hood. The, 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 all the people from uh, Wilderness Way Magazine, Chris Redigious, Alan Hulkin. The best of the best in the survival industry, the wilderness industry, will be at third time. It's a week-long event, primitive camping conditions, 
an amazing experience of giving away free seats. So if you're a husband and you win this, you want to take your wife, you still have to pay for your wife to attend, but you're covered. One to each person that wins. Three of them. Uh, it's like a $200 value or something like that. I, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, right now, I don't even know if you'd be able to still attend. Uh, I know the attendance is filling up. If you want to attend, you need to check that out and uh, send Alan a, an email right away and, uh, and get on the list even attend right now. Uh, but I'm giving away three of them on Wednesday. Why I bring that up now is that contest will only be for people who are subscribers to my YouTube channel. All right, so we're going to do a listener appreciation contest. It's going to be some shirts and maybe some discounts to the MSB. And we're going to do, you can play both contests if you want to. The other contest is going to be for three seats. You'll win one, so three winners to Dirt Time 2010. All right, again, please don't play that contest unless if you win, you're going to turn up. Uh, it's a big deal. You'll be taking somebody else to see. Uh, lastly, I want to announce some of my appearances that will be coming up. On Wednesday this week, February the 17th, I will be live in person at the AG Training Center in Farmers Branch doing a workshop on developing a modern survival philosophy. That's going to be kind of a, uh, a classroom-type environment with a PowerPoint presentation and things like that, uh, taking questions after the presentation is over, the whole nine yards. Uh, I will be appearing on Truth Brigade Radio with Christy Sajikowski on March the 3rd, um, which is a couple weeks away. Uh, so that's uh, I'll have a link to her show in today's show notes. And I will be appearing on The Rifleman on uh, Blog Talk Radio on February 26th, which is part of the Appleseed Project and the Revolutionary uh, War Veterans Society. So we will uh, we'll be, we'll be available in some uh, things outside of the Survival Podcast in the next few weeks. Just wanted you to know about those. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Brigade. Uh, if you join Members Support Brigade, you get exclusive content available only to members, a whole bunch of discounts. And uh, you should have joined in the last couple of days because uh, a lot of people took advantage of the uh, discount opportunity, and it is now gone. We won't belabor that today. Let's just rock on with today's questions. The first question I have today is from somebody that I'm going to answer, even though this is a little bit kind of political, gets tied into this and economics gets tied into this, because I, I saw the question, it's very sincere, and I felt that there's probably other people out there that have the same question. The question comes from a guy named Tom uh, in South Carolina. And what Tom says is, hey, Jack, um, I've heard you talk before about global warming, and I believe that global warming is real because I see the ice caps melting and, and all that stuff. Um, but I've also heard you say that no matter what you believe about global, global warming, cap and trade is bad, won't solve the problem, and it simply would create a new fiat currency. How would cap and trade create a currency, and how would that affect us here in America? All right. This is a little bit deep. You're going to have to follow me. Maybe one day I'll do a YouTube video with this with a PowerPoint slide or a whiteboard or something. But I'll do my best to answer that question. I think it's one of the most important uh, economic and political issues that you, you can understand if you want to be prepared for what comes if this thing passes. And there's a good chance that sooner or later they're going to get this thing through. Okay, so we, we need to, be, like, fight it if you want to fight it. But even if you don't fight it or even if you fight it and fail... Be prepared for the results. This is how this is going to work. Cap and trade passes, and all of a sudden, a commodity exists that never exists before by the stroke of a pen. Something with no value gains value, which is not using carbon. Okay? And I want you to understand that the oil companies are not opposed to this. That's a myth and a lie, and it's part of the political propaganda that's going on, because they're going to make a ton of money off of this, because their carbon allowances are going to be high. Cap and trade works this way. We have Joe's widgets and Tom's widgets. And Joe has a, a, a limit on his carbon of, we'll just call it 100, okay? And Tom has a limit of 100. Joe runs his operation in a way where he's only going to burn 80 of his credit limits for the year. Tom burns 120. Now, Tom can either pay a fine to the government, okay, a tax. A fine to the government is a tax fee, all right? Or, for less money, he can go out on the new market, the carbon tax market, and he, Tom can go to Joe and say, Joe, hey, you've got a surplus of 20 carbon credits. Would you sell them to me? Now, of course, Joe's a businessman. He doesn't need them. It's not like AT&T rollover minutes. They don't carry through to the next year. If you don't use it, you lose it. 
like anything that comes from the government, in a budgetary standpoint. So Joe says to Tom, sure, I'll pay, I'll sell you these credits. Now, Joe's not dumb, so what he does is he looks up and he says, Tom would have to pay a fine to the government this year, and these numbers are all arbitrary, it doesn't matter, it still works on the same, of $1 million for exceeding his allowance. So Tom says, well, you know what? I'll sell you my credits for half a million dollars. As long as no one else out there with 20 credits to sell, okay, is going to underbid Joe, then they they sell the credits for half a million. I'm better off giving my half a million to a fellow businessman than giving a million to the government. See how that works? You say, well, how does the government benefit in this? What What is the end game here? When Joe sells his credits to Tom, he generates income for his company. That income is taxable. The government gets their money anyway. They don't get a million, but they get to tax half a million. If Joe puts that money into his business, it ends up allowing him to expand his business and create more payroll taxes, which is the biggest tax consumers pay anyway in America today. It also creates income taxes and it creates spending. All of those things are taxed. Remember, the government doesn't care if it directly taxes money or not. All it wants to do is force it into the system. Once it's in the system and flowing, it gets taxed every time it's spent, over and over and over and over and over again. So we flood new money into the market out of nowhere. Now, how do we create new money? Because an item with no value now has value because the government says so. So that is new money. It's like making fake gold. It's like counterfeit gold. So if I, no one would doubt if I brought $10 million worth of gold into the United States, liquidated it into cash, and dumped that into the economy, then we've grown the economy of the United States by $10 million in value, right? We do the same thing with carbon credits, but we do it in the billions of dollars, not the millions, and there's no underlying real value to the asset. It's a fictitious value. So what starts to happen is that companies rise up like Al Gore's company. And they go out and they buy all of these carbon credit surpluses, and they sell and they act as a broker. All right? Now, what they do is they take, just think about the real estate market and the way the real estate market fell apart. They take tons and tons of credits, and with special allowances, they do get to roll them over, and they get to hold them as an asset. And then they parcel them out to anybody that needs them as they need them. Now, that asset, and other people start getting involved, everybody's holding this little mythical, spherical asset, right, of carbon offsets. I have $100 million worth of carbon out offsets that I'm holding as an asset. Overnight, carbon offsets become the largest trading commodity in the world in dollar value, more than food, more than oil. What happens as soon as you have a commodity that big, people start to play short against it, they start to play long against it, meaning they buy they, they, and they, they play ups and downs in the market with it. They start to create derivatives with it. They start to insure the derivatives with other derivatives, and they start to create creative investments around it. And what you create is a giant global bubble, just like the real estate bubble, with people leveraging carbon offsets as the asset. So in other words... Instead of taking a million dollars worth of property and leveraging it ten times over and having $10 million of leveraged debt against it that you call cash and sell off and keep leveraging down, 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 we have a million dollars worth of carbon offsets that that's being done with, but there's not even the $100,000 house underneath it or the million dollars worth of houses, the dirt. There is nothing except... The concept that it's good not to create carbon. That's it. And what you end up with then is a situation where you literally are printing money at will. Now, who's the big winner in this? The banks. That's why the banks are behind this. Because Joe does not send the money to Tom. Joe sends the money through the banking system to Tom. All right, and when Joe sells to Al Gore and his conglomerate, so they can be parceled back out, it goes through the banking system. And then Mr. Gore's company's assets are held in the bank and create fees. And every time the money moves, 
The bank makes money. Banks don't really make that much money from holding on to it. They make money from loaning it and leveraging it and loaning new money into existence. And they make money from moving it around and charging fees to do so. So the banks get a brand new commodity to create money out of thin air through fractional reserve banking with carbon trading. And that's the end game. And that's what they're really trying to do. And what that does is create the biggest financial bubble in history. And all of your Republican senators and, and representatives who claim to be fighting the good fight will immediately fall in love with this. And, the, and they will, you know, they'll act like they're fighting, but they'll bring the economic side into it. Like back behind the like scenes, closed door deals. And you'll see the biggest economic disaster in the history of the world sooner or later when somebody pulls the rug out from underneath this global warming nonsense and realizes this is all crap, as people are starting to do now. And even if it's real, it still falls apart. Because you're paying people for not doing things. You're creating value. It's something that has no value. It's fake money. That's a long answer, but it's the best I can do. And hopefully you're more informed today. If you want to know more, go to Genova.net. I'll put a link today. And read two PDFs. One, Global Warming Skeptics Handbook. But to understand what I'm talking about today, even better, read Global Bullies Want Your Money. It's a PDF. It's about ten pages long, I think. It will explain this maybe with some charts and graphs and make it easier to understand than what I just did today. But you have to understand that no matter what you believe about the environment and global warming and all of that, the cap and trade in and of itself is nothing but a new way to create money that's not real out of thin air. That's what you have to understand first is how the banks do it. The banks do it every day. You put up $100,000 in, and by the time they loan and reloan that money as it gets redeposited in their bank, your 100000 becomes a million in debt. Well, this puts trillions of dollars of new phony assets into the marketplace for banks to do that with. What do you think that's going to do to inflation? How do you think that's going to devalue money? And what kind of bubble can that create? Remember, we're talking about more money than oil and food combined globally. All right, let's move on to another question and get off the politics here uh, for a bit. Let's go with a gun question. Um, question, and this is from Joe. Joe says, what is your opinion of the scout rifle concept versus conventionally configured rifles? For hunting and anywhere else, a center fire rifle may be deemed appropriate. I find target acquisition faster, and I like the ability to load from stripper clips. Your thoughts? Um, well, the stripper clip thing uh, means that maybe you've built it on like a Mauser action or some other type of action that allows you the use of stripper clips. Um, the most thing to gun is uh, a great platform to build that on. If I was going to build a scout rifle, let's start out with it. Just I wanted to build one and I wanted to build one for as little money as possible, I would probably use one of the, the Mosin Nagants, um, probably the uh, Carbine, I think it's the M44 variant, I'm not sure about that number, but the short one. And uh, there's an ATI stock, and there is, I don't remember who manufactures it, but there is a scope mount that's designed to basically knock out the rear sight, and it mounts right to where the rear sight is. You put a long eye relief scope, you've got a scout rifle. And you can build that, for, you can put the, the Nagant for... Uh, let's say you want a really one nice, nice condition carbine model, best you can find on the market today, 150 bucks. The stock I think is about 75 dollars. Scope mounts up in the 70 dollar range, so you're talking sub 300 bucks. Had a scope to it, 300 bucks for a really nice scout rifle, uh, firing the 7.62 uh, uh, round uh, from the former Soviet bloc that is almost roughly equivalent to a 308. Pretty damn nice rifle. Now the, the concept itself. Um, if you're not familiar with a scout rifle, what you're talking about is a short, uh, trusty rifle um, in a, uh, a medium bore center fire. Most of them are built that way. I've seen some built on like 4570s and, and some heavier rounds. But uh, usually you're looking at like a 30 caliber, uh, maybe 33 caliber, somewhere there down into like the uh, 260, 6 millimeter range. Most of them are built in kind of that sphere, kind of the good, solid deer, elk hunting calibers. Um, and instead of having your scope mounted over your receiver, you take what's called a long eye relief scope. Now, eye relief, folks, is when I look through a scope and I want a good, clear image, 
in that scope, how far my eye has to be from that scope. Most scopes are set up for a few inches of eye relief so that you're over the receiver, you're relatively close to the scope, right? And, and that way you, you have a, a typical mounting arrangement. With the scout rifle, we move the scope forward. So what a lot of people use are, there's some specifically made long eye relief scopes for this application, but in general, pistol scopes are just about the perfect, if you think about holding a pistol up in front of you in a standard uh, shooting position, and you think about holding a rifle in front of you about the position of the rear sight on most modern rifles, about the right length. So people tend to use pistol scopes for low-budget versions of the uh, scout rifle like I just described. The theory is that with that scope forward, in a low magnification, when you bring that rifle up, I get better target acquisition. And because I can see to the left and the right of the scope, instead of, so now the scope is more like a, uh, a sight, a true sighting uh, arrangement. And I, instead of seeing just the scope and what's in the scope, when I bring that rifle up, I see the scope, I get the magnification in the scope. If I'm trying to acquire a moving target, I can see the target to the left and to the right, and I'm more able to move that rifle on a moving target, shooting a rifle more, maybe let's say like a shotgun at running game, and I'm able to lead and, and take the trigger squeeze and all. I, I like the concept. I think that it's very useful, but the other side of this, I think if most people would learn good rifle form and not overscope their rifles with too high of a magnification, they wouldn't need it. The problem that people have is they tend to get the scope up and then acquire the target. Uh, this is in my forthcoming book, uh, uh, Mastering the 22 Rifle, a lot of information about this. That is absolutely not the way to get on target with a scoped rifle. The way you get on target with a scoped rifle is you lock the target with your eyes. And you bring the scope line between your eyes and the target. If people would do that, there'd be less need in general for people to have things like um, a, a scout rifle configuration. That said, it's a tremendously nice rifle to shoot. Uh, it has a lot going for it, especially in thick wood situations. I'm not a huge fan of the scout rifle concept for the western hunter that's chasing mule deer, elk, and pronghorn out on the plains. Because generally you're looking at a fairly uh, low magnification scope, two to four power range. You're looking at an environment where you're routinely taking shots 300 yards or longer. Not the best configuration. For the guy that hunts elk in the timber, uh, the dark timber areas, for anybody that's, you know, east of the Mississippi River, I think they're a great weapon. For tactical situations, I also think they're a great weapon because tactical sniping, especially in urban environments, is generally done at ranges of 100 yards or less. You know, these long battlefield uh, sniping arrangements we hear about are rare even there. But by the very nature of urban environments, you have buildings and obstructions. There's not a lot of places, if you just walk into any urban situation and look around, there's not a, place, a lot of places you can see a 1,000 yards, even if you're on a rooftop. It's, it's very unlikely that you'll see a lot of situations like that, and that's not a defensive use of, uh, of let's say, rifle capabilities anyway. So that's not a civilian use. That's a military use, a law enforcement use, those long shots, which they generally try to avoid as well, by the way. Uh, especially law enforcement officers that are dealing with a single assailant, military, totally different scenario. So I think those are the best applications for it. Um, one day I'm going to build a, a Mosin um, scout rifle just for the heck of it. When I do, I'll make anything I learn about the experience available. Um, a really great article, though, I can tell you about, as long as the website's still up, I know the guy's not adding anything to it, but I think the site's still there. It's called surplusrifle.com. If it's still up, guys, I'll put a link to a, a Mosin that, that he created that way that he called Little Black Beauty. And it's a beautiful little gun when he's done with it. He went maybe a little further than I would with a, with a, with a, a project like this, with jeweling the bolt and all. But it's pretty cool what can be done to create these rifles. And with uh, uh, that Nagant, uh, and with Mauser uh, frames, again, uh, the guy that wrote the question, Joe, is right. Uh, was it Joe? Yeah, Joe. Um, you could use stripper clips to load quick from the top, which is an advantage over bringing your scope over top of the receiver. All right, so great question. Uh, let's move on to another one. So here's an interesting one. It came from me to, from Mike in West Virginia. Not a question, but an article. Like I said, I want to do some commentary and some stuff you guys send to me. I get tons. I get probably 20 articles a day and probably 10 to 20 uh, YouTube videos a day that people want me to comment on. 
Here's one about the recent snowpocalypse, as they've called it, the big snowstorms uh, in the uh, Northeast. This is by Megan Cox Gurdon, and it's in columns and op-eds, and it's on the uh, Washington Examiner website. And I'll just read to you the first paragraph or so. Uh, Megan says, see, we weren't hysterical. We were right. The people who rushed from supermarket to supermarket as the storm approached, eliciting titters and cheers from the rest of the country, turn out to have been the smart ones. It's not that we lacked proper pioneer spirit, as was widely remarked. Our vigilance was not evidence of wussification of America, not at all. The intense pantry stocking of the last Thursday and Friday was, in fact, a magnificent demonstration of the fact that Americans still have the true, bold, pioneering spirit. Um, nice try, Megan. I don't agree. I don't agree at all. I think the people that showed the true American pioneering spirit were the ones that didn't have to go, not because they were willing to go through it with nothing, but because they were already prepared. Uh, what I see in this article is someone that shows, uh, I'm not going to say it, that's just nasty. Um, what I see here is someone trying to spit shine a turd. Okay, that's the best way that I can put it. People pressed to the last minute, stripping the shelves bare, of our supermarkets is a turd, and Megan has attempted to shine it. And I'm sorry, that's the way that it is. What you saw happen right before Snowmageddon, and I'll agree with you, that the person up in the Northeast, when they saw this, this series of blizzards coming, they ran out, because they had nothing, and grabbed everything that they could that made sense to help them get through what was coming, was smarter than the person who had nothing and didn't do that, right? They went out and bought two gallons of milk and two loaves of bread, right? The person that went out and stocked up for a week or more was smart compared to the complete grasshopper, all right? What we had is grasshoppers. We had grasshoppers that realized winter was coming and tried to survive through the winter. But we also had a bunch of ants, and Megan's not talking about the ants. The ants are people like you, folks. People like you that saw the weather coming and went, now, let me go make sure that the cover's down on the wood pile so that it doesn't get wet. Let me go out and fire up the generator, test run it, make sure it's run, check on my reserve fuel. Maybe I'll pick up a five-gallon can of gas just to extend my reserve fuel on the way home from work before the snow comes. But I'm ready. That was the true pioneering spirit. The people that ran out at the last minute stocked up are pioneers? Are you freaking kidding me? Who is this lady that's making God's garden? What are you thinking? How are you trying to make your case that this was good for people? When these, see, here's the difference. A lot of times survivalists, modern survivalists, traditional survivalists, whatever, if we store food, we're called hoarders. They say we're hoarding. We're hoarding. Look, look at all the food this guy has. And they say they call us hoarders once an emergency happens. And we're sitting there and we're well stocked and there's people that are hungry. You're hoarding. No, we're not hoarding. We've prepared. We went out during a time of plenty, like the ant, like the pioneers, and we, we took what we needed for ourselves in the future now by paying for it in full, by sacrificing so that we could have it, by creating lifestyles around the fact that one day we might need it. That's what pioneers did. Pioneers didn't get halfway out in the middle of the prairie and look for Indian Joe's trading post and stock up before the blizzard hit them in the Midwest late in the year when it wasn't supposed to be there. No, they stocked their freaking wagons full to the brim. They acquired everything they could to survive the trip to where they were going, down to the fact that they would burn their houses to the ground in the east, go into the ashes and pick out the nails so they could reuse the nails to build their homestead, that was the pioneer. The idiot, two and a half hours before the storm starts, raking food off the shelves like a freak in Walmart is not the pioneer. This is a terrible article. Mike, I'm not picking on you for sending it to me, but this is what I think of this person. This person's an idiot. She doesn't get it at all. And I don't like to just pick on people, honestly. But my God. And this is what I'm talking about with the media. Even when they post an op-ed. It never says, hey, look, here was this family that we made fun of three years ago. Let's go see how they're doing. Right? 
And you knock on the door, and the guy opens the door, and you can hear the mild hum of a generator in the background, a roaring fire's going on, and he's holding a steaming cup of hot chocolate. And he says, hi, NBC5, and the guy's out there freezing, come on in. Let me feed you some of that poppy seed cake you made fun of, right? If you guys remember that story from about a year ago, where the lady says, it's drying out my mouth. No, they never go to the true person who was really prepared and say, how did this work out for you? No, they try to take the person who was an idiot to the last minute and then went out and hoarded. And that's my point. That's a hoarder. The hoarder is the person that's unprepared, and when they know the disaster's coming, they go out and they take a disproportionate share of what's available. Those were the people that when we had our little snowstorm down here that I saw lined up loading four bags of firewood into the back of an SUV so that the person at the back of the line didn't get any at all. That's a hoarder. We are not hoarders, people. We are pioneers. We are the ants. And these people that run out at the last minute and strip the shelves, they're the most dangerous thing in a disaster because they're going to make sure that what is available, that could get people through three to five days, gets them through ten and others through nothing. That's hoarding. What we do is not hoarding. Never let anybody call you a hoarder. And this is, I'll put a link to it because it's a terrible article. Next up today, I want to do something I should have done at the beginning, but I had so much at the beginning I just forgot. We have a new website out. It's a new little portal. It's called Save Our Skills. And it came from the two shows that we did um, last week. And it's at SaveOurSkills.com. There's only three stories there now. But let me tell you how this thing's going to work and how you can participate in it. The, the, this site is actually going to use the forum as a source. Source. If you want to be part of this as an author, you have to have a forum account. You have to post your story in our forum. Uh, and anybody on the forum can private message me or another moderator right now until we figure out a formalized system for this and say, I'd like to nominate this post for an article on Save Our Skills. Now, these posts will never be, hey, how do you do this or what do you think of that? These posts are going to be, I built a and here's how I did it. This is how you select a firearm for home defense purposes. This is how I store food under my stairs. There's an article by John McCann on there already that shows that. All right? So the way this works is we take the best do-it-yourself how-to fundamental skills um, posts with pictures and well-written articles to go with them. We take about 300 words and maybe one photograph, and we post it on Save Our Skills, and it runs like a blog. And then if people want to read the rest of it, when they click to read the rest of the article, they come over to the forum. There's no commenting on SaveOurSkills.com. That way, everybody that wants to comment or discuss things has to become a forum member, and we already have a system in place for moderation there, and nobody has to put an undue amount of effort into this new little mini site. But what it's going to be is it's like a public relations move for the survival podcast community, because people will find that site that know nothing about the survival podcast because they want to see how to make a scout rifle out of a muzzing the gun. And they'll end up onto our forum inside our community discussing things with our folks. And that should create maybe, we call it, Ronald Reagan called it the bigger tent. So that we can find more people and reach more people that are concerned about preparedness. Now the reason that we're putting the site together, we're calling it Save Our Skills, is because a lot of the skills that we talked about in those two episodes are being lost. Kids do not learn how to, how to plant a garden today. They don't learn how to build a greenhouse. People don't even, and it's not just old skills, you know, trapping and wilderness skills, survival, traditional survival skills. A lot of things that were common knowledge in the 50s and 60s, they're relatively modern technology. How does a carburetor work? How do you fix a boat motor? How do you patch a hole in an aluminum bolt? See, it wasn't that long ago the men and women of this country knew how to do stuff. They had a trade that they were a master of, right? They might go to work every day and be a carpenter. But the carpenter would come home, and if his car broke down, he could get out some wrenches and fix it. At least he could change his spark plugs, his plug wires, distributor cap, back when we had those. Right? If the brakes went out, he jacked the car up, and he changed the brakes. He didn't take it to a mechanic. People knew how to do things. When things broke in the home, mom fixed it. It was something mom couldn't fix. She got dad. Maybe they fixed it together. If it was a big problem, dad called Uncle Joe and his best friend Bob, and they came over, and the three of them together, with some help from the kids, did it. And here's the key. 
They taught the kids how to do these things. And they were passed down from generation to generation. And these skills became core to America's values. We had people that knew how to do things. And easy credit flowed. And monetary inflation flowed. We lost the value in our money. We put a premium on every child going to college, including the ones that didn't belong there. We menialized trades, where the tradesman today is looked down on as a lower rung in society. They were a high-end, high blue-collar, middle class not that many years ago. And we've gotten to a point where when anything goes wrong, we do what they call call a guy. You know? Oh, the door came off of his shed. I'll call a guy. Right? Can't get the garage door to open. Call a guy. Brakes are making a funny noise. I'll take it in for that $99 brake service. I'll get lied to. I don't know I'm being lied to. And I end up paying $600 for the $90 brake service. Even though I could have got the $90 brake service, I just told the guy, hey, just do the $90 brake service. And the skills. Baking bread, for God's sakes. Fishing. Hunting. Trapping. Skinning. The very traditional. Basic mechanical skills. Basic framing skills. How to use a freaking handsaw. Do you know how many people can't cut a two-by-four and a half with a crosscut saw? We want to save all of these skills. Herbal medicine. Herbal preparation. Plant identification. So what we want you to do to help contribute is if you have a skill that you're good at, a project that you've done, you have photos of, go into the do-it-yourself portion of our forum or the appropriate forum for your project Posted, and if you post your own article and you think it belongs on Save Our Skills, private message me or email me, send me a link to your article, and we'll get it in queue to post it at Save Our Skills. So that's the site, that's the, the objective, that's the goal. What we're trying to start doing now, folks, now that I'm full-time and I can really put some effort into this, we're trying to use the collateral that we have now. The 10,000 people a day, the 5,000 forum members, the people that are passionate about changing their lives, we're trying to reach out beyond just being a podcast and a forum. This is our first step. We're going to start doing more and more projects like this as we go. And here's the big thing. This whole thing was inspired by a listener. I didn't think it up on my own. The listener posted in the forum, and I'll post a link to the forum, so you can see this thing evolve. And on Friday, the idea formed off the suggestion. And by Friday evening, Save Our Skills was up with three test articles on it and ready to go. And by Saturday, Sister Wolf, who runs our survival podcast gear store, had put a nice theme on it, dressed it up a bit, and now it's presentable already. In a day and a half, it went from a concept and idea to a working model. That's what happens when people care about what they're doing and are willing to take action on a suggestion. We're going to regain America in a way where a young man or a young lady knows how to do at least 20 fundamental skills. That's our goal, is that people have 20 skills outside of their profession that they can do that empower them in their own lives. And enough knowledge about 20 more that even if they go to a professional, the professional cannot take advantage of them. We're going to bring that America back with SaveOurSkills.com. You can be part of it. Check it out today. Let's move on to another listener uh, question. Here's one that's not really a question, but a suggestion for a really cool tool. And I'll put a link today in today's show notes for this. But it's called Google Map Buddy. What is Google Map Buddy? It's a free software application that allows you to capture images from Google Maps and take them offline in a much more flexible way than you could do it with just using Google Maps and, you know, the print map feature and print directions feature, allowing you to do things like print the overlay of the map overlaid over top of the satellite image and to put together very large maps that encompass entire cities that can be printed on large printers uh, that would take hours for you to compile without the tool. So what good is a tool like this? Well, I always talk about having evacuation routes planned. What if you could plan your evacuation route and overlay it over the topographical scores, I mean, over the satellite image with Google Images, where you would have a greater idea of if you had to take a, a discretionary route, what was in that area, either to avoid or as a resource. So this Google Map Buddy thing came to me, and it's on a UK website, believe it or not, from a guy named Jason. And Jason, well done, man. Thanks for that suggestion. 
Google Map Buddy. Check it out, folks. And um, maybe this is a good skill, even though this is a very modern technological skill. Maybe someone could put together a, um, a tutorial on how to use this to create um, evacuation routes or create large maps. I don't know. But I do suggest you check it out and see if, uh, if it could be useful for you. So thanks a lot, Jason, for that suggestion. Here, our next question comes from a fellow named Ken. And uh, what Ken says is, great show, man. I don't own a rifle currently. Uh, the only rifle experience I have is with a 22 caliber pellet gun. I've had my eye on a 10-22 for some time. I have respect for your opinion, and I'm looking forward to your ebook. Um, the question is, which bolt-action 22 should I buy? A follow-up question, if you have time, is why do riflemen seem to prefer bolt-actions over semi-autos? So it's not really a follow-up question. It's really the same question, uh, and it's a good question. Let's take a look at this. First, I want to say this about the Ruger 1022. If you buy a Ruger 1022, you will not be unhappy with your decision. And anytime you want anything to uh, accessorize your weapon, expand the capabilities of your weapon, you'll find about 100 million people waiting to sell you something. Uh, it is the most flexible semi-automatic 22 out there. And I would say if you take out things like the Weatherbees, uh, the Weatherbee uh, semi-auto 22s, um, it is probably the best made uh, semi-automatic 22 out there. I really have an affinity for the Marlin Model 70 uh, semi-auto 22, and I think it's the Model 60, the Model 60 and the Model 70, I think are the two model numbers. But there's one that's magazine-fed uh, from a, uh, an under, uh, underside magazine. Uh, from Marlin, and there's one that's tube-fed magazine. We have the one that's tube-fed. I like those as well, but the 1022 is a better gun. It really is. Um, it's more substantial. It's a better weapon for training people. It has a lot more options. Like, if you want to train someone to shoot with military-style sights, uh, it's really easy to replace the sights on the 1022 with military-style sights. Very easy to scope, very reliable. Uh, Ten-round magazine that does not extend through from the bottom of the weapon, fits, fits flush and flat. And if you want to go out and, like, play Rambo with a 22, you can get 25-round uh, magazine. So there's a 50-round drum, but it doesn't work well. So I have nothing against the 1022. I own one. I love it. One day I'll do a review for it. I have mine set up pretty nice with accessories from Ruger. I have a sling that comes from Ruger with it and, and some other stuff. And it's, uh, it's a great gun. And, and I really enjoy it. So if you want a 1022, don't let me tell you not to get one. That said, for training purposes, for doing rifle training drills, and for becoming a master of the rifle, I prefer the bolt action. And I prefer it for a variety of reasons. Let's start with your question. Why do riflemen prefer the bolt over a semi-auto? Primarily due to inherent accuracy. You can take a Ruger 10-22, and you can do all kinds of little tricks with it. You can put a lot of money into it, and you can create a really sick, slick-looking, beautiful rifle that is a tack-driving machine. But you can probably take a Marlin 925 out of the box. Uh, the Winchester uh, new bolt action is called the Wildcat, and Remington has one. I think it's the 927, but don't crucify me if I'm wrong, guys. But Remington's new little bolt action 22. You take any one of those three models, and you take it out of the box, and you shoot it at 25 yards, 50 yards, it'll probably shoot out of the box the way that the Ruger will, or the other semi-autos will, after you've kind of spiffed up their accuracy capabilities. With, I will again say, the exception being the Weatherby 22s. Those are amazing little 22 semi-autos, but they're also extremely expensive, and they're really beautiful works of art that you don't want to hunt hard with in the bush. So the Rifleman generally prefers the bolt action over the semi-auto, due to an inherent accuracy advantage. Not that semi-autos can't be accurate and can't make them be more accurate, but inherently, all things being equal, 20 or any bolt-action rifle tends to outshoot semi-automatics. Again, I don't want any comment from the armchair people in the peanut gallery about how, well, Barrett has this new semi-auto 50 caliber rifle that can deck out a guy with a single clean bore shot at a mile. Yeah, I know, I watch that TV show, too. Okay, but that's a $10,000 or more. That's like, I think that's actually like a $20,000 gun. Okay, so it's not that it can't be done. It's that at consumer-level product, and even at custom-grade product, the inherent accuracy exists with the bolt. And if we take the bolt and we do everything to it that the person does to the semi-auto to improve its accuracy, the inherent accuracy stays and we still outperform. The other reason is for reliability. Most semi-automatics, especially semi-automatic 22s, 
are quite accurate weapons. Uh, they do a very good job of, uh, of, uh, getting the job done, feeding reliably with, uh, with good ammunition, especially if they're maintained regularly and kept clean. Uh, we've taken our little Marlin Model 70 and we fired it till it was gunked up and it was still spitting and ejected shells out with no misfires. That said, there are potential problems with failure to eject, failure to fire, failure to feed with a semi-automatic that either don't happen with a bolt or when they do are much faster to correct. So while my rate of fire is slower with a bolt action, my speed of correction is generally faster. So those are the two big ones. For me, taking it beyond that, that slow rate of fire with a bolt action, when I'm training a new shooter, makes them focus harder on making the first shot count. I've seen plenty of people pick up a Ruger 10-22 or any other semi-auto 22 with a scope on it. You set some cans or bottles or skeet up for them about 25 yards out. Bang, miss, bang, miss, bang, hit. Bang, miss, bang, hit. Bang, miss, bang, hit. Bang, hit, bang, hit, bang, miss, bang, hit. And at the end of that little salvo, they feel all happy because they broke a bunch of things in a relatively short period of time. But if we're going to master that rifle, that rifle's purpose is not for breaking skeet. The 22 was invented to kill small game. That's what it's for. That's its job. It is a weapon designed to kill. Game of the appropriate size. Squirrels. Fowl. Birds of various sizes. Uh, ground squirrels. Game up to the size of fox. Raccoon. Coyotes a bit big on that for me. I wouldn't go into the coyote size with a 22 unless it was just an opportunity shot with a good clean head shot. But from that size down, that's what that gun is for. That's what the round is for. That's its purpose. Well, as you might imagine, when you see a gray squirrel bouncing through some limbs, you wait for him to pause and he's sitting on that branch and it's kind of bouncing slowly from his weight, and you squeeze off that first shot, if you miss it, he doesn't sit there like the skeet does when the dirt flies about two feet away from it. He starts hauling ass through the trees. So that second shot that the guy hits with the semi-automatic at target practice and training generally will be fired at nothing if you're shooting at an animal that wants to survive. It does not want to be collected. So by training with the bolt action, you become better at making that first shot count because you never mislead yourself. It also takes a great deal more skill to follow up a shot when an animal's crippled or knocked down, or you're going to maybe get the rare opportunity where there's two squirrels in a tree, and when you fire that first shot instead of running, the first squirrel kind of freaks out, pauses, doesn't know what to do, and you get enough time to work that action, get out there and take that second shot. So you run training drills of follow-up with the bolt action. This is like teaching a person to drive an old Jeep with a stick shift and no power steering. If I teach you to drive that to where you can drive it well off-road and on-road, and I put you in a Ferrari and put you on a road course that that Ferrari is made for, odds are with just a little bit of extra training, you can push that Ferrari to its limits and you can get the best out of it, if that makes sense. If I put you in the Ferrari is the first thing that you drive, Odds are you will never get the best out of the Ferrari because you haven't learned the fundamentals of driving first. It works a lot like that with a, with a, with a semi versus a bolt and with an iron sights versus a scope. If I take somebody and I teach them how to shoot a uh, iron-sighted bolt-action rifle well, and then we eventually train and we put a scope on it, and then we go to another level of training, then we put a semi-automatic with iron sights in their hand, and then from that level, we bring them up to a semi-automatic with a scope. Now, that semi-automatic is, is capable of really demonstrating its advantages over the bolt. The rifleman still says, day-to-day, give me my bolt action because it's more accurate and it's more reliable and it's more dependable. And I know that if something does go wrong, I can correct the problem quickly. So that's the why. Uh, both on my end and both on how people think in general. Kind of an interesting question. It comes from Derek. Derek says, hey, Jack, my question is, what is your view of porch dogs? I've asked the question a few times before never got an answer, and yesterday's talk of dogs made me think of it again. Great thing I heard, you think dogs are mainly to be inside dogs. 
And then he goes on, growing up in Central PA, our dogs were always outside, except for really, really cold days, and they were always fine. Let, let's talk about that a second, because I guarantee you, if you've listened to any of my shows on selecting dogs, um, I view my dogs as members of my family. And my family doesn't sleep outside in the backyard unless there's a real reason for it. So my dogs sleep in my home. If you have dogs that are happy living outside, and you take good care of them, and they have all of their needs met, you give them a nice dog house so that they can get out of the, the elements, and when you have really extreme heat or really extreme cold, you bring them in during those periods of time simply to protect them uh, from that extreme. And they're happy, healthy, and well cared for, and you take them to the vet, I have no problem with it at all. I think there's actually some advantages to it. The dog's always outside. If the dog's always outside, then he's better able to do his job of defending the property. Uh, Marjorie down at Backwoods Home, or I'm not Backwoods Home, Backyard Food Production, is a perfect example of that. She has uh, a couple dogs with, they're like, I think they're lab Pyrenees mixes, and their jobs are to protect the geese and protect the chickens, and they are outside all the time, and they seem to love it, and they're happy, and they're content, and let's be honest, wild dogs live outside. The, the natural state of the canine is to be outside. I also believe, though, that dogs have evolved in conjunction with man. That taking dog from the wild, domesticating it, and making it a friend is about the oldest relationship between humans and animals that exists. I'm sure there's an anthropologist out there that can prove it with something else, but to me, that relationship with canines goes back to a time when we ourselves very seldom had permanent structures. And dogs travel with people. Even if you go to tribal areas today, their dogs are a big part of their lives. So that's why I view my dogs as being in my home. I also look at protection as being the things that I care about protecting the most are inside my home. And if I'm going to have my defender prepared to defend me, I'm going to put him where my most valuable things are. In other words, if I had a cop that was stationed to guard my home, and um, uh, there was a reasonable threat. That's why the police gave me that police officer. I wouldn't want him at the end of the block sitting in his car. I want him either inside my house or at my front door protecting my family. I feel that way about my dogs. I want them in the house, and I want them with me. But if you want to take another approach with that, I have no problems with it at all. Uh, to each his own, I guess, is the old saying there. Uh, my thought, though, is if you're going to have outside dogs, Go with dogs that are better suited for your environment. Um, we adopted Lakota, who I lost about, oh gosh, I guess it's about six months ago now. Uh, it doesn't seem that long. But he was a good friend, and he was a good dog. And uh, he, was, uh, he was really a family member. He was a Siberian Husky. We live in Texas. I, I would, If I had the, uh, the view that my dogs would be outside dogs, I would have never adopted a Siberian Husky in Texas. In fact, I don't know that I would adopt one in Pennsylvania. Uh, it gets pretty hot in the summers in Pennsylvania. Uh, I guess you could set up a, a, a proper uh, facility so that he could cool himself, but, well, that just seems tough. Now, if you live in uh, northern Canada or Alaska or whatever, Siberian Husky or an American Eskimo or uh, uh, what do you call it, Malamute or any of the, uh, the Alaskan Husky breeds, uh, all of the Eskimo dogs, fine. They can be outside dogs. They love it. Uh, likewise, if you take a dog that's very fine, in, fine-haired, uh, very low insulation factor, uh, the, a breed that's been bred for a specific purpose, uh, that has a hard time with laying on hard surfaces like a Greyhound or a Doberman, uh, they don't belong as outside dogs in very cold climates. Now, if you bring them into a warm climate, you provide sufficient bedding for them so they can lay down without having that, you know, because if you look at a Greyhound or even a Jack Russell, and you look at, the, they have almost no fat on them at all. They have very little padding, and they, they tend to get uh, sores very easily from laying on concrete and hard surfaces. So if you're going to have outside dogs, my only caution is that you get dogs that are appropriate to your climate and conditions and make sure you accommodate any deficiencies and minimize the deficiencies by breed selection in the first place. If you go with good old-fashioned mongrels, as long as you look at the, you know, the hair length and, and things like that, um, and, you know, like kind of what the mix is made up of, but you don't take, you know, a mongrel that's basically half husky and put him in the Texas heat because you're going to have just less profit. Good old-fashioned American mongrels can pretty much handle anything, uh, and they make great dogs. And I think it's sad that they're the ones that end up 
for adoption along as the ones that are most often euthanized in our clinics and our, our, our uh, shelters and things like that. Because people want, you know, purebreds. Now, I know we have a, uh, we have a German Shepherd and we had a, a, you know, a Husky. Both of those were adopted too, though, folks. And our other dog is a Black Lab and Chow and God knows what else. He's a great dog. He's getting old, and we'll probably lose him in the next few years, and that's sad, but he's a great dog, too. So don't get too hung up on breed selection with dogs, folks. Pick the dog that fits your family and fits your environment. If you want that dog to be an inside dog, pick a dog that you're going to be able to deal with in your home. Um, and if you want him to be an outside dog, pick a dog that can deal with the home that you're going to provide for it. Hopefully that's a good answer. Let's see if I can fit one more in before we go. Hell, i got a question here from Ann that's also about dogs. This is a good one. Uh, it's a common problem for people with gardens. Um, we have several new raised beds in our front yard. So these guys in the front yard sit on the fence, right? And it seems we have stray dogs coming through and digging at the fresh earth we have in the beds. It's going to create a real problem when we want to plan the future. We currently have them covered with black garden cloth and are spraying the garden cloth with pepper spray to deter them. The cloth will need to be gone when we plant. Do you have any advice to deter the neighborhood dogs from the uh, front beds of the house? Uh, no, we never see the dogs, just the evidence of their destruction. We don't want to harm the dogs, but just calling animal control won't do any good unless we have them trapped. It's healthy to be, okay, that's her little saying at the end of her emails. Okay, um, here's, here's an easy one and a very inexpensive one. You can buy um, these little water sprinklers that have motion sensors on them. And what you can do is set them up kind of around your raised beds, and if the dogs come in the area, their motion will turn on the water flow. All right, so that would be the lowest cost, easiest, and most probably effective method of deterring the dogs. And what you have to realize is that if these are the same dogs coming back over and over again, what you're doing now is already helpful because you're conditioning them that this place is a bad place to be, that they don't want to be there, okay? Um, the next thing is if you start adding that water deal, that it, once or twice getting hit with that water, hey, man, this is not the place for me, and they're going to tend to stay out of there. The next thing that you can do is go ahead and get a big pile of uh, habanero pepper, uh, or maybe you want to go a little bit lower grade with your pepper selection, serranos or something like that, <coughs> and get a blender. Get a blender and mix um, about half peppers to half water ratio. And blend it until it's just mush. Just blend it with everything your blender's got going for it to make that into a soup. Now, here's the thing. Even if you do that, it's going to separate into like a pulp in a liquid form. Okay? This is a good for pest deterrence as well. That's why I'm telling you to do it, actually. Set it aside in a container until it separates. Use a container where you can get a uh, spoon in there, like a ladle in there, a slotted spoon. And carefully wearing gloves, probably want to wear uh, some eye protection with this as well. Stra strain off that pulp and squeeze it out. Take whatever's left, pour it through cheesecloth or another fine mesh cloth, put it into a spray bottle. All right? That will be pepper spray. Not pepper spray for defense, though it would work. <laughs> I, I wouldn't rely on it, but if you happen to be harassed by someone in your garden, you had a, a spray bottle with a good stream on it with that, and you hit them in the eyes with that, it's going to blow. It's going to suck. Spray that around your garden on a daily basis, especially as your plants are young and tender. It'll help deter the dogs, but it'll also help deter a lot of pest insects. And then one of the most invasive little creatures that we have to deal with in DFW in the springtime that likes to dig everything up, the squirrel. No mammal likes it. Now, birds, it won't deter birds at all. But it is a good repellent for pest, for a variety of pests, not all, but a variety of pest insects. Uh, mixing a little bit of neem oil in it and using it as needed might be another way to go. But you've got to be real careful with the neem and mixing it beyond a recommended ratio to burn your plants for pest control. But it's also going to help with dog control. I think if you do that, You'll have a much more pest-free garden in your springtime when it's most susceptible to insect attack. And if you add the uh, motion-sensing, uh, uh, what do you call it, sprinkler, it won't be any time at all where you're not going to have any more problem from the dogs. You'll probably be able to get rid of the sprinkler. Now, caution with the sprinkler. I would only turn the water pressure on during times when you think the dogs will be around. So if in the middle of the day they don't show up, this is a nighttime event, turn it on at night. If you leave the house for more than a day, 
don't turn it on because the hose should rupture and you're gone for a long time, you could end up with a lot of uh, leakage and drainage and flooding and very angry neighbors. But that would be what I would do. And I would kind of with that, I would go out and get a brand new, very good quality uh, industrial strength hose of the length you need to make this thing work. I'd get a quick, quick disconnect for it so you can leave the sprinkler in the ground at all times and just bring the uh, the hose out. What you want to do, though, is try to determine the approach uh, uh, that these dogs are probably taking so you can use one sprinkler and make a maximum effect with it and kind of set that sprinkler so that their channel of approach is more likely to set it off, not when they get to the beds, but as they approach them. To the point where they get, we don't even want to be here. Dogs are very, very easily to condition animals. And uh, that's why you can take a dog as long as he uh, has any desire to please whatsoever. And you can generally teach him tricks like sit, lay down, shake hands very quickly by using positive reinforcement. Shake, grab the hand, give a treat. Shake, grab the hand, give a treat. You know, with, with labs and dogs that are uh, intelligent and have that strong desire to please, it's usually a 10-minute process to teach a dog shake even an older dog. I've done it plenty of times. Well, that conditioning response is what you need to play on right there. You need to make sure that you're using that conditioning response to your advantage. So best I can do with that one, inexpensive method, combine it with the uh, the uh, homemade pepper spray, which is a good pest deterrent anyway, and you should have good results and very limited problems from your dogs. And it should also help not prevent squirrel, squirrel damage. The problem with squirrels is they dig little holes. These are not big a deal. It's when they decide to dig the hole right where you've just planted that little broccoli plant or lettuce plant or tomato plant, and they dig the plant up and it dies before you have a chance to correct it. Uh, they generally don't eat the stuff, but their digging is a problem. So there you go. Folks, I hope this has been a good show for you. I feel like it's been one of our better listener question and commentary shows. Um, I'm really excited about what we're doing with the Survival Podcast long term. I'm really excited about Save Our Skills. I want you to get involved with that. I know we have some great people out there to contribute. And I know there's tons of posts out there on the forum already. So if you know of one or if you wrote one or if you find one, let us know. We'll get it up there. We'll come up with a formalized process uh, to submit these uh, soon. But until then, uh, just just let me know directly, jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. Send me the link. I'll take care of it. I'd like to get that thing seated out with the first good dozen articles, uh, get it really dressed up really tight it up, and then we'll formalize the program. One more thing you can do to help with Saver Skills. If you have a blog or a website, if you would help me out, link to Save Our Skills. But when you do it, link with the words traditional skills. Just those two words. That's a search engine thing. If you want to know why, send me an email, and I'll explain it on the air. I'm just going to say I need links to this new site using two words and two words only, traditional skills. So they're the words in blue that a person would click on. And uh, we'll see what we can do with getting this site to be a good PR piece and get on with saving America's skills. As I conclude today, I want to talk about skills real, real quick as we wrap up and why you need them. You have so many things in your life right now. Even if you classify yourself as poor or lower middle class, the, the, the possessions you have would be mind-boggling to probably 70% of the world's population. They would look at you as being one of the wealthiest people in the world, and even if you're living on food stamps and in the projects, when you take the world as your yardstick, you're among the most 5% wealthiest people in the world if you live in this country, anywhere other than on the streets. If you have a structure that you go home to, if you have a vehicle that takes you there, and you have an electronic device that allows you access to the Internet and television, and a communication device like a phone. If you have all that, you're in the top 5% of wealth in the world. And here's the danger. What I have and what you have and what extremely wealthy people have from a, from a possessions and technology standpoint can be taken away in an instant. But as long as we have our mental faculties, our knowledge and skills are ours for our entire life. That's why they're our most valuable asset. Tying into that, that when it comes to surviving, the people that survive in adverse situations better than anybody else are the ones that know what they do matter. Well, the more you know and the more you can do, the more you can take action and live out that principle. And finally, I believe that skills have intrinsic worth, intrinsic value. Just like when we look at a beautiful river or a beautiful forest, and even if it doesn't directly produce anything for us, we say, there's value there. It's something special. 
I believe that the man that can take care of his family at hard times because he knows his way around a wrench and in today's age a PC and has the traditional skills, the ancient skills as well, has intrinsic value and worth. And those skills have intrinsic value and worth. They should be handed down. So make sure you're learning. You're not just storing. You're not just building out the perfect defense weapon. And you're not just having food and guards. Make sure you're learning the skills that drive all of these things. Because that's the best way you can make sure that you'll be able to take care of yourself and those you love no matter what happens. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if time get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.